Parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and this is episode number 41. Today in the show, we're joined by Kip Adams to discuss the current state of whitetails in North America. This is a discussion you're not going to want to miss. All right, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. And today, as I mentioned earlier, we've got a great guest and an important topic to discuss. Joining me and Dan today is Kip Adams, who is a certified wildlife biologist and the director of education and outreach for the Quality Deer Management Association. But on top of that, in my opinion, he's just simply one of the most knowledgeable and well-spoken people I've met on the topic of whitetail deer. That said, part of his role at the QDMA is to study trends and issues across the whitetail world and to help educate hunters about what's happening. And that's exactly what we want to discuss with Kip today. In many states, especially in the Midwest right now, we've been seeing rapidly declining deer herds and harvests, and many other challenges are arising across the country along with that. And the end result has been one of the roughest patches in the whitetail world in decades. So with all that being the case, we're going to bring Kip on the line here in a minute to discuss all of this and more. But first, Dan, are you ready for this? I hope so. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> uh, you think this is going to be an interesting conversation? Yeah. Um, I've always kind of found this really interesting um, because, you know, yeah, there's there's a lot of statistics to back up people's arguments of what is good and what is bad for the quote-unquote deer herd. But, um I don't know. I, I love it's it's a lot of it, a lot of it's objective as well because you know it comes down to you mean subjective? Yeah, subjective. That's right, subjective, objective, subjective. Anyway, don't delete that out because it makes me sound real. Right, <laughs> and you, if, <laughs> if any, if anything, Dan, you are real. That's that's, that's real. <laughs> so a, a lot of it's subjective. So um, I, I just I'm curious of what he has to say on some of that. Yeah, I think um, if you know, I don't know how much you've been tuned into this, but, um, you know, because of, because as some people know, I've been working with the National Deer Alliance over the last four or five months. Um, I've been uh, privy to a whole lot of feedback from a lot of hunters from across the country. 
And there is just a tremendous upswell of concern about whitetails over the past year, more than you know I've ever heard. Of course, there's always been complaints every year from different factions, but it seems like now there's definitely um, kind of a perfect storm of new challenges and issues that are affecting deer in a lot of places and hunters. And, um, you know, it's, it's an interesting time to be a whitetail hunter. And I was actually working on a larger article for a magazine on this very feed on this very topic too, and have interviewed a bunch of biologists and different professors and, uh, wildlife agency representatives and officers and getting a whole bunch of different perspectives on this. And, um, you know, if there's anything I can take away from all of that, it's that there's definitely something going on here. Like things are definitely changing. Um, and that being the case, you know, I think Kip is going to be the perfect guy to talk to about what's happening at that larger level. You know, as I mentioned in that little intro there, you know, with Kip's work at the QDMA, um, from what I understand and from conversations, conversations with him and others, you know, he's really responsible for, you know, talking to all the biologists, talking to the hunters, talking to um, agencies, talking to all these different representatives across all kind of levels of the deer hunting world to figure out, you know, what's going on out there so that he can understand from a, from a high level, from a 30,000 foot view, you know, what are the trends, what are the issues, what are the challenges? Um, and then we, he can start educating and we can start learning. So I know that Kip's been working on something called the Whitetail Report, which the QDMA puts out every year. And so I know he's been working on that recently, and that's going to be coming out here pretty soon, the new 2015 edition. And I think a lot of the things that they've compiled for that report, we're going to be able to discuss here. And I think that's going to be, I think that's going to be pretty interesting. So I'm excited to hear what he has to say. I'm interested. Um, and I, I'm definitely looking forward to hearing his perspective on all these different things. Cause sometimes, you know, there's kind of a doom and gloom perspective, especially recently from a lot of guys. And I'm, I'm curious to see what Kip's thoughts are. Um, based on you know all the hubbub that we've been hearing across the news and all media outlets really recently, so it's gonna be good. What uh, I'm curious, Dan, what do you think from your experience? You know, in your I understand you hunt you know whitetails in one place, um, but how do you feel about the state of whitetails in the population and the herd, just given your personal views and experience? Well. From, you know, just observing the, the areas that I hunt, um, and I've hunted them for years now, the the population in my area, I feel, is down from, from previous years. I remember when I first started bow hunting, I'd sit in a tree stand and would see 15 to 20 different deer a night, and that's a lot. Yeah. This year, uh, you know, fast forward 10 years, and those numbers are down. But this year was the highest quality of bucks that I've ever seen in, in a hunting season as far as an age class, you know, through trail cameras and, and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And as far as numbers, I felt they're down. I almost felt like the properties that I, I was hunting had a bit of a swing as far as a ratio is concerned to more bucks than does. And I don't, I think I, I'm not a hundred percent sure what the QDMA says the the right ratio is supposed to be, but it, it, I, I would say it was over two, two bucks per doe. Interesting. And, and I- yeah, so, so, so for me, I feel I'm okay with lower numbers, higher quality. Yeah. I think, um, you know, an interesting thing here, uh, to take away from a little bit of what you just said there 
is the fact that right when we're talking when I ask you the question, what do you feel? How do you feel about the state of whitetails right now? Mm-hmm. Your answer and your opinions are going to be based on your experience right there in your neck of the woods where you hunt, right? Right. Um, and that's how it is for pretty much everyone. So when I ask you know Bob from Indiana. What do you think about whitetails right now? What whitetail hunting about the deer situation? They're going to give you their observations. You know, their opinions can be almost solely based on their observations right in their neck of the woods from the 10 times they went out or the 20 times they went on their 40 acres or their 400 acres or whatever it is. Um, and so you get a lot of people, and this is perfectly natural, but we all develop our own idea of what's going on and what the situation is and what the issues are all based on our own personal experiences in our little neck of the woods where we hunt. Um, but we all kind of get this little tunnel vision because our whole opinion on the issues or the situation is based on, you know, our little piece of the pie. Um, and so you get some people that are really upset or some people that are really happy or some people that are really concerned or some people that are totally content. And it's all based on, you know, this one kind of looking through a straw. They're looking through the straw right. at their little piece. Um, and so you've got, Millions of hunters that are all kind of looking at the, the situation, the whitetail situation through their little straw. And what I'm starting to see now that I've been involved with this you know, organization is I'm trying to look at the bigger picture and seeing all the different perspectives and all the different issues and how they're different across all over the country. You know, there's certain states where we're seeing some real, you know, significant issues. And then there's other states where things are totally hunky dory, at least at a high level. Um, so it's an interesting time because things are really different across different parts of the country. Some hunters are very happy. Some hunters are really upset. Some places, populations are declining, and maybe that's a good thing because they were too high. Some places, populations are rising, and maybe that's a good thing too because they were too low. Um, there's just a lot of different things, and a lot of things are in flux. And I think you know the point of me mentioning all that is that when we pull Kip on here in a, in a minute, I think he's going to be able to give us this high-level overview instead of looking through a straw that I look through or that maybe you look through or, you know, the average guy, one of our listeners. I think Kip's going to be able to give us a perspective that looks, you know, not at the straw, but he's looking at the whole big, big gulp, 84-ounce cup, and he can see the whole picture based on the fact he's been able to talk to people across the country and get those perspectives and look at the actual data, not just what Bill says, but, you know, what all the numbers are saying. So. I'm interested. I'm interested to see what the status is because you know I've been hearing people cry bloody murder, you know, over the past six months or, or year or so, and for good reason. In a lot of cases, you know, the more numbers I see, the more concerned I get. Uh, but I want to I want to see if Kip's going to give us a reality check or if he's going to say, "Hey, there are some issues." Um, I don't know. So that said, what do you think about uh, pulling Kip Adams on the line and just getting started with this conversation? I say we get the party started. All right, let's do it. All right, here with us now is Kip Adams. Welcome to the show, Kip. Hey, thank you, Martin. Man, I appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. We are, um, you know, as we were just talking about a little bit earlier, we're really excited to talk to you. Given, you know, everything that's been happening in the whitetail world over the last couple of years, there's, I think, a, a fever pitch of people talking about, you know, how things are changing and some of the issues affecting deer across the country right now. And I know given your work, you've got, you know, some interesting perspective on that. Now, Early in the show, I gave our audience a brief introduction to who you are and, and what you do, but you know, be interested to hear from you. You know, could you share with us a bit more about your background into you know what you've done to this point related to deer and deer management and, and kind of what you do now? Sure. Uh, well, I grew up in northern Pennsylvania, and I grew up in a, in a hunting family, so uh, I've always been involved with the outdoors. Uh, 
you know, I spent my entire life in the woods and was very fortunate to learn early on that that's what I wanted to, to do for a career. So I uh, went to school, um, got a wildlife degree, went to the University of New Hampshire for a graduate degree, and spent the last 20 uh, or 20 odd years either conducting research on deer or managing deer for, for state wildlife agencies or the last 13 working with QDMA. Um, I have a unique perspective in that the first two jobs I had out of graduate school were for states. Uh, I managed uh, a bunch of land in central Florida for the Florida uh, Game and Fish Commission, and then I went back to New Hampshire and, and took over as the state's deer and bear biologist for the New Hampshire Fish and Game Department. So uh, that gave me a, a very good feel for you know what, what it takes to manage a statewide deer herd, um, all of the constituents that are involved, you know, all of the, the issues that come in with that. The, you, know, you have to look at the biology of it, uh, the social nature of it, the, the politics of it. So uh, that helps me tremendously in my job with QDMA, working with state agencies and hunters and landowners, because I have a pretty good feel for all the factors that go into to managing deer, um, certainly a lot more than just the science end of it, and, uh, and uh, hopefully a little bit on how to be successful uh, meshing all of those stakeholders together to, to make a very successful program, because uh, at heart I'm a deer hunter more than anything else. So uh, I'm lucky to be a deer biologist, but I often say at my seminars I am first and foremost a deer hunter, and uh, so that's what's near and dear to my heart. Yeah, I love that perspective that you bring, given your past experience as a biologist, also as a hunter, you know, also in your role at the QDMA. You've got some really interesting experiences that I think give you, um, you know, this almost 365-degree perspective that a lot of us don't have. You're able to see it from all these different angles. Um, you know, that said, can you tell us a little bit more about what you do now with the Quality Deer Management Association? Sure. I'm our Director of Education and Outreach, and what that means is that I oversee our REACH program. And REACH is an acronym that stands for Research, Educate, Advocate, Certify, and Hunt. And, uh, and those five things uh, encapsulate QDMA's mission. So uh, I'm lucky to get to, to work with a number of great people there, but oversee each of those components on what QDMA does on a daily basis, such as uh, the research programs that we get involved with. Um, we're able to secure funding uh, from a few different sources to help put funds toward valuable research projects on deer and habitat. Uh, we help design some research projects. And the nice thing about it is, you know, we, we do all of this with hunters in mind in that it's really nice to, to know exactly how uh, deer see or hear, but we take the tack that, all right, let's look at that from a hunting perspective and how can that help hunters when we help uh, get involved with research projects. So uh, so I enjoy the research end. Uh, the educational end, uh, that's really the, the horse that brought QDMA to the race and uh, so I get to, to help oversee all of the different educational programs that we have, um, whether that's stuff that's in print or in posters or DVDs or on television or on the web. Uh, you know, we, we produce that stuff in a lot of different formats just because hunters today like to, to receive it in different ways. Uh, older hunters tend to like to have something in their hands, uh, you know, a hard copy of something to look at, where a lot of younger hunters and youth hunters much prefer something on the web or something digital format. So. We try to keep it uh, exciting, try to keep it fresh so that we can provide information in a format that all hunters can use and uh, enjoy and, and, and uh, you know, gain value from. Uh, the advocacy part, is, uh, it's amazing the number of legislative bills that impact deer each year. Uh, um, unfortunately, many of them would, would impact it negatively. So uh, QDMA fights for, for hunters' rights uh, like nobody else with regard to, to supporting good legislation, uh, opposing bad legislation, you know, and just making sure that we get good information to legislators to help them make good decisions on, hey, you know, is, is this good for hunting or not? 
and uh, where we get involved with a lot of advocacy issues each year uh, along those lines. Um, you know, and many people don't realize or don't have a clue what's going on out there with regard uh, to legislation. And uh, and I certainly didn't before I, I was in this role, but uh, it is amazing um, what's going on in that world that would directly impact your management um, if a lot of that stuff did pass. Uh, from the certification end, uh, we have certification programs, both for individuals, which is what we call our Deer Steward program, um, as well as for land, a land certification program. And uh, we have uh, our programs manager, uh, Matt Ross, who I know uh, you know well, uh, mm -hmm. does a great job with that. But I get to work with Matt regularly to, to put on those programs, uh, to, to speak at them, and, uh, and to make sure that we're delivering the highest quality programs uh, available to folks. And the last part is the hunt. Um, that's our hunting heritage piece, and that's where our mentored hunting program falls into that. Um, that's where our youth program, which we affectionately call the Rack Pack, um, falls into that. Uh, Hank Forster is our, our youth program manager, and uh, you know we have a whole section on just kids and youth. Uh, that's about a lot more than just hunting. You know, we, we certainly advocate to take kids hunting, but this is about just getting them to the woods, taking them fishing, teach them about the outdoors, let them explore. So uh, it's, our youth program is a really cool program that uh, that I'm, I'm fortunate to get to work with a little bit. Yeah, I think that's a that's a terrific initiative too. Um, I think the other thing I really take away from that terrific explanation is that you are a busy man, Kip. You are a very busy man. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good thing, though. Uh, if I wasn't busy, uh, that that would be bad for deer. So, uh, it, uh, you know, I, I love what I do. I'm very lucky to get to do what I do. So uh, I'm glad there's there's so much out there. That means that deer are important and hunters are important, and uh, so that's a good thing. Yeah, absolutely. Now, one more thing I know you also work on is the annual whitetail report that the QDMA releases each year. And, you know, in past reports I've seen, you know, that you guys look at a lot of the top issues and trends that affect deer across the country. Um, and I know that you are wrapping that up right now for the new edition for 2015. So I'm sure you've been, you know, diving deep into all these different topics that are um, – I think of interest to hunters across the country, especially with the 2014 season just wrapping up and all the harvest numbers coming in. There's lots of people, you know, having questions about why are these numbers the way they are or, or what's happening to the whitetail herds or are things going well or are things going bad? There's a lot of questions. So, you know, what I wanted to frame the majority of our conversation today around was this, this question of, you know, what's the current state of whitetails in North America? So to start, Kip, at a very high level, I'm curious, given everything you've you know been looking into and what you found and what you've heard, right now, what is your diagnosis of the state of whitetails in North America? Well, um, I'll tell you, Mario, I'm, I'm an optimist, so uh, so the, I'll, I'll start by saying there's a lot of very good things going on with deer hunting and, and deer management right now. Um, for instance, we know that uh, this past year you know, we killed a record low percentage of yearling bucks in the harvest. Um, Back in 1989, you know, when we first started looking at this, well over 60% of all the bucks killed were just one and a half. Mm -hmm. And today, that number has dropped to 36%, wow. you know, lowest ever. And actually, last year was the lowest ever. And this year, you know, we beat uh, uh, a record again. So, uh, so that's a very positive trend, you know, with, with hunters passing deer. Some agencies obviously have regulations that require hunters to pass the majority of yearling bucks. But, you know, above and beyond that, there's just a lot of hunters that willingly pass those one-and-a-half-year-old deer. And uh, so I think that's a very positive sign for the future of, of hunting and, and for deer management and something that's directly related to education, you know, over the past decade or so. 
So, uh, so I think that is very good. Um, and along with that, since we're protecting more yearling bucks, that means we're moving bucks into more older age classes, which is great for viewing, photographing, hunting, calling, etc. And uh, and this past year, we also set a record for the percentage of the national buck harvest that was at least three and a half years old. So you know, three and a half, four and a half, five and a half year old bucks. You know, nearly a third of all the bucks killed in the United States last year were at least three and a half years old. You know, and that is just amazing to think how far we've come in a, in a very short period of time moving deer into some of these older age classes. So yeah. uh, you know, hunters deserve a tremendous pat on the back, you know, for that and uh, something that they should be very, very proud of. That's terrific. Now, is there anything, you know, that's on the the optimistic side of things there's some those are some positive numbers and that's exciting to see um especially for someone you know like me who um is excited about the principles of quality deer management and allowing those bucks to get to an older age class and how that changes the dynamics of the herd and the experience of the hunt and everything along those lines um is there anything on the other end of the spectrum that is concerning that you're seeing over the you know given your research recently for the state of our herd yeah, there is, and, uh, you know, this annual report that you talked about, you know, we actually call, you know, it's kind of a State of the Union address for deer, and uh, we look at the biggest issues each year and then talk about them in this, and uh, we've been doing this since 2009, you know, and each year there, there's certainly some top issues, whether it's a disease outbreak or a certain perspective that some group is taking on deer that, that impacts deer hunting, and uh, but I can honestly say that the, the report that we're just finishing up right now, I think there's more pressing issues in that. Um, that we haven't dealt with in the past uh, than ever before. And, and it's some huge issues that we're going to have to face going forward as hunters and, and deer managers. And uh, two of the, the biggest of that are declining deer herds in, in some areas. And, uh, you know, for a long time we've talked about just having way too many deer and are trying to reduce deer herds. And, uh, you know, a lot of people incorrectly equated QDM with just shooting all the does. But, uh, you know, quality deer management has always been about shooting the appropriate number of those, you know, to balance those deer herds with the habitat. And I think that we're seeing some states now, you know, that have been aggressively trying to reduce deer herds, which is a good thing, you know, that maybe now have hit that balance point, and uh, some that possibly have dipped a little too far below that. Um, good thing is, you know, that's correctable, so well, that's a very positive thing. But now we need to educate hunters again to say, okay, you know, we, we cannot have a record harvest every year. You know, as we reach our deer population goals, we're going to have lower harvest. But I think there are some states out there that have such reductions in the harvest that, you know, probably have gone a little too far and has a lot of hunters uh, concerns, and rightfully so. And, and you know what, there's that region is clearly uh, the Midwest uh, is the epicenter of that. Um, one of the chapters in the Whitetail Report we looked at is uh, the harvest data, both bucks and analyst deer. You know, and we look at that every year. How does this compare to last year you know, and two years ago? And what is the age structure of that? But uh, we added a chapter this year that looked at where is it now versus where was it 10 years ago, kind of a, you know, a decade look. And uh, what we found is there is a huge change from a decade ago in, in some states. Uh, the Northeast is doing pretty well. It's very similar. Uh, the Southeast is very similar as a region. There's certainly states within there that are up or down. But overall, those are pretty close to what was shot now versus a decade ago. But the Midwest harvest in most places has just fallen off the table. It is amazing uh, what some of those states have, have gone through. And, and overall, shooting you know almost 20% fewer bucks today in the Midwest as a decade ago. 
and uh, a 20% drop, or almost, it's actually an 18%, but an 18% drop is a huge drop. Um, wow. So anyway, there's, there's a lot of hunters concerned, and, and probably for good reason. Um, particularly, you can look at a couple of states, and then, you know, in big deer hunting states, where buck harvests are down over 40%, um, or almost 30%, you know, that, that's a big deal. Particularly when you look at the analyst harvest in some of these states, it's down even farther than the, than the buck harvest. So uh, that's, there's, there's a lot of issues right now with, with deer numbers in the Midwest. And uh, so this is not the, not the end of the story by any means. We're going to hear a lot about this uh, in the coming months and, uh, and likely the next few years. Wow. So I've got two follow-up questions. That number one, you mentioned a couple states that are seeing, you know, declines closer to forty percent. What are these? What are these couple states that are the epicenter of these largest changes? I guess is my first question. The, uh, the actually the state that it looked had the biggest decline uh, nationwide was Alabama, fifty-five uh, percent reduction. But two things about that. I'll, I'll qualify. One, it's obviously not in the Midwest, but. That state's reduction was, was more related to a, a buck bag limit change than actual deer herd change. Um, back in 2007-07-08 season, they went from, used to be in Alabama, you could shoot a buck a day for the entire season. And uh, they limited that to three bucks for the whole season. So that really changed, so it saved a lot of bucks, which is a very good thing. So that reduction is actually a positive for, for the deer hunting world, uh, even though it looks like the biggest decline. But as far as the Midwest goes, the, the state that buck harvest declined the most, uh, and it was a pretty big shocker, is Iowa. Iowa's buck harvest has dropped 43% in the last decade. Wow. So uh, obviously a well-known uh, big buck state, you know, a very popular deer hunting destination for anybody that can get a tag and get in there. So, uh, you know, 43% decline uh, is a huge, huge deal. So, so Kip... I'm not sure if you know, but Dan, my co-host, is an Iowa resident and hunter. So, Dan, what what are your what's your reaction to hearing that? What do you think about that? Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart, or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid, and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And, as often is the case, those guys were on to something. Because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from heart and soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised grass-fed and finished cattle heart and soils unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean convenient taste-free capsule find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry 
if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? You need a brake light fixed? You need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself, and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. Well, you know, you said 43%, right, Kip? That's correct, yep. Over the past decade. Now, you know, and, and me and Mark had a, a short discussion about this before we, we got you on. And, and from my tree stand and my hunting properties, I only get to see a very small um, sampling of what is out there. And, and this year, um, I saw a smaller deer number. And I even said over the past 10 years, I, I saw a smaller deer number, um, but I saw higher quality bucks. Now, you said that the Iowa buck harvest over the past decade is down 43%. Is what, what kind of, I guess, from a statistics standpoint, what are you taking into consideration to, to know that that number is down 43%? Each year for, for the whitetail report, uh, we do a, a state wildlife agency survey. So uh, we ask every single state wildlife agency's deer project leader a, a series of questions. And, uh, and, and on that survey is we asked the number of antlered bucks that were killed uh, that year or the year before, as well as the number of antlerless deer. And then we also asked age structure questions and all that. And unfortunately, Iowa DNR does not collect age structure data, so they could never give us the percentage of the harvest that was one and a half or two and a half or three and a half and older. But, uh, but they always give us the number of bucks and antlerless deer that are taken the year before. So, so those harvest numbers are straight from the DNR data that we just keep on an annual basis and then uh, use to compare and, and make these type of, of uh, analyses. So from that 43%, I guess there's several different things that could you know play in the role of that number. Are, are people passing? I, I know you mentioned this for um, Alabama, but um, is your guys' research showing that people are passing more deer? Are, are, is there... I don't know, disease involved? Is there less number of hunters? I guess on it doesn't have to be Iowa specifically, but for, for the overall buck, de, um, buck harvest decline, what are you guys seeing? I think there's a couple things there. Uh, disease has certainly played into that. Um, 2012 was the worst hemorrhagic disease outbreak on record. Um, and right before that, 2007 was the previous uh, record outbreak. So, uh, disease certainly plays in you know we've had some really bad winters recently what is that have played in um you know and in, in iowa as well if it was just people passing you know certain bucks or something you know that may play some into that but uh, from the analyst harvest side uh iowa's analyst harvest is down 52 percent during that same time period so uh you know, there's lots of talk out of Iowa about hunters just not seeing as many deer. And then a part of this is, you know, is Iowa has been trying to reduce that deer herd. You know, mm-hmm. 10 years ago, it was way above where it should have been. So, you know, it should come down. And uh, so I think, you know, that the question then becomes not such that, you know, the sky is falling here. It's just, okay, you know, have we come down far enough or are we to the point now where we need to stabilize this herd rather than continue to reduce it? So, but as far as why it's come down, I think there's a lot of factors. Disease has played in. Winters have played in. Obviously, just hunter harvest has played in, you know, as, as one of the goals for hunters to shoot a bunch. 
so uh, that that plays into that really big as well. But uh, but I'll tell you, I think my personal opinion is looking at not just Iowa but all of the Midwest. Um, I think one of the biggest factors that has played into you know these huge reductions in, in deer herds is uh, is habitat loss. And if you take a look at the amount of CRP land that the U.S. has lost from 2007 to 2014, it's a huge decline. We've lost. Uh, over 9 million acres of CRP in the U.S. during that time period. That's, that's a full 25% of all the CRP land we had was lost since 2007, and, uh, and well over half of that is directly from the Midwest. The Midwest has lost over 5 million acres. So if you look at a region that, you know, the, the, one of the most critical habitat components anyway is cover, you know, and now you're losing even more cover to go back into row crops um, you know, that really does not play well for, for whitetails at all. And so my professional opinion is we're really starting to feel some of the effects there of, you know, the loss of this critical habitat that's directly playing into the productivity of some of these deer herds. So, so and I, I'm, I'm going to use Iowa, um, the 43% number that you said again, but because there is a decline in the population of, uh, of the herd and there's also – um, what people would consider 43% less of a buck harvest. How, how does the QDMA then tell the public, you know, don't worry about the 43%, you know, less buck harvest because it's not necessarily a bad number. Uh, I'm not necessarily, well, I think QDMA is not saying that that's not, don't worry about it's not a bad number. I think that's a huge number and something that they definitely should be concerned about. You know, buck harvest has dropped 5% or 10%. Okay, you know, that's well within the limits of trying to reduce a deer herd. But uh, you drop a buck harvest over 40% and a doe harvest over 50%, I think it's, the red flags are flying like crazy and sirens are going off. Hey, you know, something's going on here. We really need to take a look at this. Gotcha. Yeah. So a handful of different things that you mentioned, Kip, um, I would like to dive into further and Again, this this whole topic of deer populations is something that's just you know every day on social media. People are talking about it. New articles are popping up in you know different news media outlets across the country, and it's definitely the topic that seems to be top of mind for a lot of people. Um, so you mentioned habitat loss is, is a big possible issue, and that's something that a lot of people seem to be glossing over. When I hear a lot of people talking about this, they don't tend to mention that as one of the issues that they think is possibly affecting what's going on here. Um, one of the largest typical um, culprits that I hear is the agencies are telling us to kill too many deer, right? They've been issuing too many tags or they're, they're trying to kill off all the deer because insurance companies want them to do that or whatever it might be. So my question for you, Kip, is does that argument hold any weight? Is there any truth to that? Uh, what are your thoughts on the idea that, you know, we can be pointing the finger at somebody like that or the agencies that they're just pushing too many too many does to be killed or too many deer to be killed? Well, there's certainly more stakeholders involved today with agencies than in the past. Um, you know, several decades ago, hunters were about the only stakeholders at the table. And uh, today we have hunters. We certainly have the insurance agencies. We have farmers. We have the anti-hunters. We have homeowners associations. You know, there's just a lot more people that have the ear of our DNRs today, you know, uh, to try to, to get their agenda passed. Now, as far as the insurance companies driving you know, all these deer harvests, um, you know, I've been to literally hundreds and hundreds of, of public deer meetings over the years and state and federal level meetings, and uh, 
I don't know if I've ever seen anybody from the auto industry sitting at that table with them. And, uh, you know, they're often talked about as being there. But the reality of it is, you know, the insurance industry, they're not losing money when we hit deer. You know, our rates that we pay for auto insurance goes up if you live in an area that has more vehicle accidents. So uh, I don't believe that that holds much water at all. That's always talked about. People say that. But from my experience, I've just never seen it. Uh, now, the flip side of that, you know, how many, how much of this is being driven by hunter over harvest? Um, you know, most states out there over the past decade have been aggressively trying to reduce deer, or at least reduce them at some point during that decade. And uh, so that certainly plays into this. Um, that's not necessarily the fault of the DNR by any means. You know, there was a time when, gosh, you almost couldn't slow deer herds down, particularly in the productive Midwest. You know, they were just cranking out so many fawns, and so many fawns were surviving, and there was so much food that, man, you could throw everything you possibly could at a deer herd, you know, and it would still grow. But over the last few years, now when you throw that disease on it, you throw some bad winters on it, at the same time that you pull all that habitat out from underneath it and you add more predators, you know, I think it's just a mixture of all of these factors hitting in a very short period of time that suddenly changed the amount of harvest pressure we could put on some of these deer herds. So, uh, you know, is, it, is hunter harvest playing into this? Absolutely. And, you know, I think there's many cases or places that we need to reduce the amount of animals we are taking. But I'm not placing the blame on the DNRs with these. I think it's just a new day or new era in deer management, you know, where the rules have changed a little bit. So we just need to adapt to those. So on that, I guess right along those lines of, of that point you made there, would you say, is it safe to say that for many hunters across the country, it's time to start adapting to a new normal? Absolutely, or at least um, get a little more involved with what is happening such that we can improve, you know, if, you have, if you're hunting in a poor situation right now. But, um, but yes, I think it clearly is a new normal with what's going on, especially as re- with regard to uh, the amount of antlerless deer that we need to remove now to stabilize deer herds. So on this topic then, let's, it sounds like we need to be more involved we need to, you know, pay more attention to what's happening in our localized herds. And, and from everything I've gathered from talking to different people about this topic, too, you know, it just seems like um, more of the responsibility is going to be shifting to the hunter on the ground or the land manager to make sure that we personally are managing our local deer herds as best as possible, given all these different factors now that are coming into play that are localized in many cases. So, you know, for example, maybe EHD hit really bad in my area. Well, now I need to start making some decision, decisions from a management perspective about what's the right thing for this herd. Um, and, you know, the state game agency might not be able to tell me what to do on my, you know, local 40 here because they don't know that's going on. So my question for you, Kip, is, and I, th- I think I know some of the answers here, but I'm curious to hear from your perspective, how can the average hunter better understand on their in their local area what the right number of deer to kill is or what the right ratio of does to bucks should be how can they start making these decisions better i think by collecting a little bit of 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 data from you know the place that they either own or that they hunt on um we you know we have a tremendous opportunity to do that today with trail cameras you know almost everybody has trail cameras so you can collect some information just on you know the number of does that you're seeing i'm sorry the number of fawns you're seeing in regard to the number of does um two of the best ways are to do trail camera, run trail cameras, but as well as just observations for base while you're hunting. Keep track. You know, each day you go hunting and how many hours you hunt 
and mark down the number of bucks and does and fawns that you see. And, uh, you know, and compare that over time. You know, are you seeing more fawns per doe this year than in the past? You know, if that's the case, that's a very good thing, you know. Um, conversely, if you're seeing fewer fawns per doe year after year after year, that's a potential red flag that, hey, something's going on, you know. We're not recruiting as many deer as in the past. So that's the first sign that, you know what, we can't shoot as many deer as we had in the past. So, uh, the, so you're absolutely right. The average hunter can take a much more engaged role in what's going on, regardless of what the bag limit is or the agencies tell us we can shoot. You know, we can tailor uh, our current situations you know, to the number of deer that we're going to shoot or allow others to shoot, you know, on our property or talk to the ones around us. So, uh, so that's an absolutely perfect way for hunters to get involved. Uh, and along those lines, they also should get involved with the state wildlife agency. You know, talk to their local biologists, get involved with the DNRs, because more than ever, we need to be active uh, and have open lines of communication, you know, with the DNR to say, hey, here's what we're seeing, here's what's going on, you know, tell us what you're seeing as well. Um, one of the, the concerning things in, in doing this year's report, and it's, it's very disappointing, but it's one of the biggest issues out there right now, is that, you know, we ask wildlife agencies, you know, to kind of rank the top issues that they're dealing with or that impact uh, deer management. And, uh, you know, and we've asked similar things of hunters. And uh, hunters say right now one of the biggest issues out there are, you know, there's just no deer or very few deer. You know, deer densities have really dropped. And you ask the, the wildlife agents that same question, one of their top issues that they ranked was high deer density, you know, too many deer. So uh, wow. when you have, you know, these two stakeholders with completely different views, you know, have polarized views of what is happening, that doesn't make for, for good, uh, you know, solution to these problems no so the only way to fix this is to get the agencies and the hunters to sit down and talk together to help each other you know share views or see why they're coming from this um because otherwise you're just going to sit there you know and knock heads and you know we're not going to get anywhere and it does nobody any good for the agencies to say well, there's more deer than we need for the hunters to say you know that's bs you know i'm not seeing anything and then you just lose credibility and you lose that relationship, then it all falls apart. And then that certainly doesn't help anybody. Yeah. I mean, this, it blows my mind that that's, you know, that's happening. And, you know, a specific instance where I think this is happening right now to a degree, and I'm curious about your perspective on it, if you've followed this at all, is what's happening right now in Ohio. I don't know if you've, if you've seen some of the recent stories coming out of here, but there's been a series of meetings where some of the agency reps have been sitting down with hunters and hunters sharing their feedback and others. And there seems to be a lot of contention here about the agency's goals of the, the deer population and what hunters think is, is the right goal to have there. Do you have any insight into that specific situation? Yeah, I do. And I've been following that very closely as well because, uh, you know, historically Ohio has had a very, very successful deer management program. Um, they have done a great job with numbers of deer and age structure of that deer herd. Um, obviously a very productive state so the deer herd has been growing you know over the last uh, few decades so they have been trying to reduce it like many other states um one thing that ohio has done differently than many though is that they have the agency has always been out in front with the hunters uh, like tonkovic who is their deer biologist you know is, is a very knowledgeable deer biologist but one of the things that makes him so successful is he has always valued what the hunter said you know it's always been out meeting with the public and meeting with hunters and listening and sharing information so because of that, you know, they've always had pretty good hunter support for what the agency has been trying to do, and they've been very successful at implementing new programs and new strategies, you know, to keep that successful. So uh, here over the last couple of years, 
all of a sudden, you know, they're killing fewer deer there too, and uh, some hunters are, are upset. And you know, I understand that. As hunters, we tend to get upset when things aren't as good as we feel they should be. But uh, what's been happening here over the last two or three weeks has really surprised me. You know, uh, Mike has really come under attack by some folks, and uh, you know that that just has not been that common in the past because of the relationship the Ohio DNRs had with hunters. So, uh, so that, that's pretty uh, strange there right now. And certainly a strange situation for that DNR to be in. Interesting. So when one side of the table says there's too many deer and the other side of the table says there's not enough deer, are, are both sides of the table bringing statistics that show, you know, you know, hey, there are too many deer or, hey, there's not enough deer? Now, typically, there's one side is bringing data, and then the other side is just bringing personal observations. Yeah. Um, you know, the agencies typically have data, harvest data, uh, et cetera, to, to show what is going on. Um, hunters bring their personal views of what they saw or didn't see, and, uh, and so you're not always comparing apples to apples. Now, one of the things that makes that conversation difficult is that wildlife agencies or state agencies manage at uh, you know, a deer unit or a wildlife management unit level. You know, whether it's a county or a group of counties or, or whatever. Um, but as hunters, we don't hunt at the unit level. You know, we hunt at the property level. So within any given wildlife management unit, you have some deer herds that are well above what the habitat can support, others that are well below it, and, you know, some that are in balance with it. But uh, so with any unit, you know, you can find hunters that agree with what the agency says. Um, unfortunately, you know, also within every unit, you also have hunters that say, you know, that are just mad as heck because you know, there's more deer and they're eating all their crops or their trees or their gardens, and hunters that have very few deer where they're hunting, so they're mad. So, you know, the, the biggest discrepancy there is just the unit where the size of the unit that you're talking about when regard to numbers of deer. And, uh, you know, and as hunters, we often forget that, you know, an agencies cannot manage to the property level. Um, but as agencies, we often forget the same, you know, that, that hunters don't, realize or at least agencies don't do as good a job as they could you know explaining to hunters hey here's what we're seeing at the unit level you know uh, we understand you may not be seeing deer and you know we feel bad about that but uh, let's at least try to understand uh, what exactly we're talking about so that we can have productive solutions and uh, you know unfortunately agencies get beat up a bunch and I understand that so uh, we have too few agency members today that are very good at listening to the hunters and you know, really listening to them. I'm not talking about just sitting there and letting the hunters say the piece, but, you know, really listening to what they're saying and then try to have a productive conversation. You know, and as hunters, you know, we make it easy for them to tune us out because you know, there's a lot of hunters that just whine and cry um, when they're really not doing anything on their own part to try to make the solution better. So, you know, I think the way we need to fix it is to, to draw a line in the sand and say, all right, let's just start all over here. Let's sit down together, you know, and recognize that we both want to have healthy, productive deer herds, and let's work together to make that happen. It definitely does seem like there's a, a serious communication just issue across the board in a lot of cases. And when you, you know, you just laid out there what this great scenario could be if we could sit down, start from ground zero, and start, you know, talking from both sides and understanding each other. I'm curious. Is that something that can realistically happen, or is that realistically happening anywhere, Kip? Have you seen any really good examples of a state and a hunter population that has been able to develop that relationship? Yeah, I have seen it, and, and actually I've seen it on numerous occasions. Uh, you end up with states that really involve the public, and Ohio historically has been one of those. Uh, 
Missouri is one of those in the Midwest, and, and there are others as well. You know, they bring hunters in to be part of the stakeholder group um, or uh, deer management plans. So, um, yes, it, it's not uh, uncommon. There are numerous states that has done that, and, uh, and has that has been very successful. And the thing the hunters need to realize is it's the perfect opportunity for us to go in and be good partners because the agencies certainly want us to partner with them, you know, they, they really can't say this, but, you know, as much or more so than they do the homeowners associations and the anti-hunting groups and all of those, they have far more in common with hunters, so they have a much better vested interest to sit down and be good partners with us. So, you know, so from the hunter end, it's the perfect time for us to do that and to get engaged. And, uh, and so anyway, it's a long way to answer your question that, yes, I absolutely have seen it work and, uh, and have seen it work beautifully. Yeah, I think that's a, a great point. Something I've seen too, um, you know, as I've been working closer with the National Deer Alliance, I've been, you know, tracking all sorts of different news stories related to deer across the country. And over and over again, I am hearing about these different opportunities where the agencies are sitting down with hunters for different meetings in Wisconsin or Ohio or Missouri or all these different places. And what I'm disappointed by, and I guess this is, this is just how, you know, people are, but the participation is actually really low you know there's there's thousands of hunters who complain or upset about the situation in their state and then i see all these different examples where there is a meeting held to talk to people about it and you know only 20 people show up um and i wonder if there's you know to your point kip there's an obligation to us the hunters to participate and to get engaged in these opportunities when they are there because hey if if they're putting out there and we're not engaging well then we can only blame ourselves to a degree for not taking advantage of that opportunity no, that's right, and uh, and you hit the nail right on the head. You know, as when hunters, when things are good, we tend to to be complacent, you know, and not go to meetings or not get engaged with those things. So, um, yeah, you know, there's a lot of public meetings, a lot of public input opportunities that go by the wayside, you know, with very little public public input. Um, now, one of the things that we looked at this in last year's Whitetail Report was, you know, we asked agencies how they engage the public, and uh, you know, all of them did public meetings. They took them other ways, you know, but. But very few states, you know, engage the public through social media, you know, and through some other more popular, more, I guess, uh, timely ways to do that. You know, and particularly for youth hunters and, or at least new hunters that are very tech savvy, you know, that's how they get information today. That's how they want to be engaged. Uh, and that's why at QDMA we provide information in those matters. You know, I think the agencies would serve themselves well to, to also take advantage of some more of those means to engage the public you know i think that you would get better engagement or at least i would hope that you would and uh but from the hunter side they absolutely need to take opportunities to get engaged um rather than just complain yeah yeah absolutely i'd like to shift now to another one of the challenges um again there's a kind of a few hot topics that i think a lot of people are talking about we've talked about you know possible over harvest or agency issues or anything like that that's when a lot of people talk about um another issue as you mentioned briefly earlier, is disease, especially back in 2007 and 2012. We had the very large outbreaks of, of EHD. Can you talk to me a little bit, Kip, about, you know, what's the, is, do we have any idea, is that something that's going to continue to be an issue? Um, is there any reason to be continually concerned about diseases like EHD or CWD? Um, you know, what's your thoughts on how that's going to be affecting whitetails moving forward? Well, well, hemorrhagic disease is the most common disease of whitetail deer and, um, you know, somewhere in the U.S. that breaks out every year and deer are impacted. Um, this year it was very easy. Uh, Virginia is one of the only states that had any hemorrhagic disease uh, 
mortality this year. But uh, but that is going to continue. You know, there's, there's nothing that we can do about that. Carried by insects. You know, it's worse in hot, dry years. But uh, that's always going to occur, and uh, uh, it's occurring more. Um, more northerly than in the past. You know, it used to be just a southern deer disease. And uh, and I vividly remember even when I was in college, you know, in the late 80s, which wasn't all that long ago, um, you know, that was specifically talked about as a southern deer disease. You know, it just, just didn't occur in the north or almost never. And, uh, but that's not the case today. You know, it occurs, you know, all the way to Canada today and across the U.S. and there are more strains and, you know, in different strains. And so, yeah, so hemorrhagic disease is likely to going to continue to increase um, its, its effects in the future, um, whether it's related to climate change or whatever, uh, I don't know, but it's certainly expanded its range um, during the past decade. So yes, that will continue to be an issue. Um, the thing is, it's natural. It occurs. All deer that get it don't necessarily die from it, So uh, you know, and then they can pass some of that uh, immunity on to their offspring to help protect them from it. So. So, you know, it's not a deal breaker by any means, but it's something we will continue to deal with. Um, CWD, we definitely will continue to deal with that because there's no way to, to decontaminate a site once it has uh, the disease or the prion. Um, that disease continues to spread into new states, into new areas within states, you know, throughout deer herds. Um, you know, there's, there's so much research going on about CWD right now, but there's, you know, there's way more that we don't know about it uh, than what we do. So um, that is going to continue to be a huge issue, mostly because every time a deer gets that, they die. You know, there's, there's no cure, there's no vaccine. It's 100% fatal. So uh, unfortunately with deer, you know, they can carry the disease for, you know, several years in some cases without showing any signs of it, but simultaneously spreading or shedding, I'm sorry, the, the prions that other deer can come in contact with and then contract the disease. So... Uh, you know, we, I think we're only at the tip of the iceberg with what, what's going to happen with CWD. And, you know, unfortunately, hunters are being impacted, you know, across the Whitetails range now um, with that, you know, loss of privileges in areas that have CWD, lose the ability to do either bait or feed or use minerals, do baited camera surveys, you know, longer seasons. Deer season, essentially, as you know, it is over, you know, because in most cases they try to dramatically reduce those deer herds sharp shooting programs, all kinds of other stuff, you know, that, that negatively impact hunters. So uh, there's, there's going to be a lot of new challenges that hunters are going to have to deal with um, if you live in an area that has that disease. Yeah, it's uh, it's a scary thing when when you see these stories pop up. It seems like once every week or two, another couple deer found with CWD in this state or that state, and it just seems like slowly that continues to slowly snowball. And um, like you said, I think we're still at that tip of the iceberg, but if ever we reach a tipping point, that's something that's that's pretty concerning. Oh, absolutely. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid, and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And as often is the case, those guys were on to something. Because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised, grass-fed, and finished cattle. Heart and Soil's unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in 
ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash MeatEater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash MeatEater. So keeping the good times rolling then, <laughs> how about how about predators, Kip? How much of an issue do you believe the predator, you know, the increase in predation across many states is? Um, how big of an issue is that? And who are the culprits there, if that is a big issue? It, it certainly is a big issue. Um, you know, and I will say this, so this kind of goes back to something we talked about earlier, where the state agencies and the hunters are on this. Uh, hunters view predation as a huge issue. Uh, state agencies ranked it uh, very low as an issue impacting their management, which really surprised me, given all of the current research out there right now <laughs> showing uh, the negative impacts that the predators are having on fawn survival. Um, my personal opinion is that uh, predators are a natural part of the environment. You know, we're lucky to have them. It's good that we have them, uh, but at the same time, they need to be managed, just like deer or anything else. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, in areas where we have too many, they should be, you know, reduced. Um, whether that's through you know additional hunting seasons or additional trapping seasons or, or whatever, you know, it's just it's just part of the whole thing. I, you know, I think any wildlife management, you know, the key to being successful is to keep whether it's deer or bear or coyote or bobcat or whatever it is populations you know in line with what the habitat uh, can support so uh, I think that we're in an area today where we're seeing expanding predator populations um, particularly coyotes in the southeast where they haven't been for all that long um, deer haven't reacted to it yet and uh, there's lots of research showing you know, that coyotes are absolutely pounded fawns to the point you know where we have extremely low fawn recruitment rates extremely extremely low uh, we have lots of northern deer herds you know that have dealt with coyotes for a long time um, but we have some northern herds now that are dealing with expanding populations of bears. And, and you know, bears are very good at eating fawns in the spring. We have some northern deer herds dealing with wolves, and obviously wolves are very good at, at killing deer. So uh, as hunters, I think this is just part of the, the new normal where, hey, we have something else out there that's removing some of our deer. So the number of animals deer that we need to take during the hunting season needs to be less to accommodate for some of this. Herd. But at the same time, in those areas where predators are, more than they should be or too high you know i think it's our duty to to reduce some of those to acceptable levels so that you have healthy predator populations as well as heavy or a healthy prey population so i think we just need to find that balance yeah i when it comes you, you use the word balance and 
I, I, I can't help but to think that humans have gotten in the way of nature. So, I, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, because that's I'm, I'm good at, you know, jumping to conclusions. But <laughs> Iowa introduced deer to the state from uh, Michigan, I believe, like in the 70s or 80s. Is that correct? Not sure what when they did. Uh, most states restocked deer from from some other state. Um, you know, during the 1900s. Uh, I don't know the exact dates that Iowa did, or specifically where they came from. But uh, but it's it's safe to say they they did bring some in from somewhere. Gotcha. So, so so now what we've done is we've brought in something that may or may not have been to the area a long time ago. Well, Dan, and- though. I think the key point with that is it reintroduced. Yeah, like reintroduced. Deer, or, deer have been across almost the entire North American content for thousands of years, but we right. just decimated them at one point to the point where we had to reintroduce. Right. So how how much is whether or not we, we brought it to an extinction level way back in the day and then reintroduced these animals into this habitat um, that may have not been the same that they were living in previously – and then now we're seeing an, an effect all the way until today that that is almost impossible to find a balancing act. No, I think that we definitely can find a balancing act. Um, I don't think it really matters, you know, where deer would have been brought there from. You, know, you could bring deer from Texas there or Florida, put them in that environment, uh, you know, in a pretty short period of time. They would do very well. Um, you know, if given the habitat that they need. You know, you certainly have the food available through most of the year. So, uh, you know, give them cover, give them habitat, you know, and they'll do well. They'll thrive in that. So, uh, you know, and, you know, Iowa has some of the most productive habitat, you know, on the face of the planet. And that's why it had, you know, way too many deer for so many years. So, uh, you know, I think the balance there is just a matter of, okay, we're trying to reduce deer herds. They're doing that. And, uh, they were doing that at a rate that was working extremely well with all of the, the model data that the DNR had until you throw in all of these other factors, such as this huge loss of habitat, predators, disease, etc. So it just changes the model, so it takes a little bit of time to recalibrate it. I just think we're just in that recalibration mode right now where, you know, the DNR will certainly get it right. They have some very smart people there and some extremely talented deer biologists. You know, so they know how to do it. It's just a matter of using the, the most current data to do it. So, uh, so you know, I don't think I was dead in the water by any means. It's just, you know, things are a little different there now than they've been lately. Um, they certainly will get it right. And But seeing things like this where how far the harvest has dropped, you know, and listening to hunters, you know, that's just all part of the process. So, okay, now we'll back off on our antlers harvest. We'll solve this issue. We'll get, you know, do what we can to, to put some habitat back out there and, and man, Iowa will be rocking again. I'm completely confident. So, with with the data that you're collecting and historical data, are are we seeing trends that could potentially help us prepare for the future? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And uh, particularly given that you know it wasn't that long ago where we didn't think we could slow deer herds down, now we've clearly shown, hey, we can. You know, we know how to do this now, or what it takes to get in front of those growth curves. So, oh yeah, so this data is all very important for uh, you know average hunter to the average landowner, right up to the, the natural resource professionals who can use it within their state uh, to, uh, to do, you know, or to be successful at reaching their goals. That's good. So we've talked here, Kip, about a lot of issues of concern 
you know, habitat loss, disease, predation, possible overharvest. Um, there's plenty of things to be, you know, potentially wary of and concerned about. We've touched on a handful of different adjustments that maybe we as hunters can make or agencies can make or someone else. I'm curious if, you know, again, we're looking at the 30,000 foot overview here. If you had to look at the overall state of whitetails and the concerns facing them and then choose two or three actionable next steps, like two or three potential solutions, what do you think those top steps should be from your perspective? I think by far the top step is the engagement of hunters by our state wildlife agencies. I'm getting our hunters and our state folks to sit down together to to get on the same page and to share information. Uh, I think we can solve any issue with a solid partnerships there. And conversely, I think we will fail miserably at everything we try to do if we don't work together. So I think that is by far the biggest thing uh, that we need to do, and the beauty of it is that it's entirely accomplishable. Absolutely. Definitely today, especially with new social media and different ways to open those communication lines even easier than before. Absolutely. Now, here's the the big one, money. So reduced hunters means hunting companies aren't making money. Um, Iowa has seen a decrease in um, over a 10-year period in the state budget for DNR officers. Um, the influence some of these organizations have towards the, you know, like you mentioned, the non-hunters, um, the hunters, the agencies and whatnot, how much does money influence some of these decisions? Uh, money's a, a huge driver of it, uh, mostly because uh, the vast majority of the states don't get any general fund money, which means that most state wildlife agencies are funded entirely by uh, licensed revenues, you know, and $100. And then uh, those are matched by PR funds, you know, from the federal government on excise tax for, for hunting that stuff. So that's why we say, you know, the hunters drive the system and they pay for all of our wildlife management programs. You know, all of the game species, all the non-game species management, you know, that's almost all on the backs of game wildlife. And, you know, the vast majority of that comes right from the backs of deer. So... So money plays a huge role in that, and as you get fewer hunters, that's fewer licensed dollars, which means there's less money for wildlife agency budgets. And that's also why things like CWD that take money away from good programs like hunter access programs or or buying land or research and funnels it into CWD surveillance and CWD monitoring, that kills us as hunters. You know, we're starting with a small pool of money anyway and then taking it and putting it, you know, now, it's not unnecessarily because you have to monitor the disease, but it's just unfortunate that it has to be funneled into those areas. So, so yes, yeah, so money drives, you know, all of this. And, uh, you know, I don't think that you have agencies out there making decisions specifically to, to increase money. You know, hey, let's sell more non-resident licenses or let's sell more of this or that, you know, at the expense of the resource. Um, you know, I, I, I do not believe that's happening, or at least not happening at a very high level. You know, because those states are accountable for those. Um, but uh, not to say it's never happened, but I don't think that's the, I mean, that may be the exception, way more than the rule. So, but money certainly plays in, you know, to their line of thinking with a lot of stuff because it has to. You know, they're not a business like, uh, you know, uh, we see on the street, and it's a good thing because most state wildlife agencies would, would be out of business very quickly if they had to run 
you know, or operate like business. But they at least need to, you know, to use some of those principles. So, so certainly money factors into that, into the discussion, but uh, it's not the driving factor in, in most cases. Interesting. That makes makes all the sense in the world. So I, I do want to start wrapping this up here. We've talked about a lot of different challenges. We've talked a lot about, you know, where things are now in comparison to where they were maybe 10 years ago. And Kip, you know, as you know, I've been involved in this discussion um, and, and a part of this, but I'm curious from your perspective, um, can you tell us a little bit about the National Deer Alliance? Um, I've talked about it a bit here already, but this was formed, you know, this past summer in response to a lot of these issues we've been talking about today. From your perspective, can you tell us and the listeners a little bit about, you know, how you think the National Deer Alliance is going to be working to address some of these things and, and, and why is the NDA, you know, why has it been created? Oh, absolutely. And I am very optimistic about that. I think that's one of the bright spots on the horizon for deer hunters, um, mostly because, you know, this has the opportunity to be the largest group of deer hunting advocates ever assembled, you know, by far. And in, you know, in a world where science means less uh, to wildlife management today than at any point during my career, because politics plays a far bigger role, deer hunters and state wildlife agencies more than ever need a strong advocate. Uh, and NDA can fill that. That's exactly what it's created to be. You know, less than 1% of hunters in the United States belong to a national deer organization. Less than 1%. You know, and partly because deer have just been so plentiful for so long, we've just taken them for granted. You know, we haven't, we haven't combined our efforts to protect them. You know, you can take a look at turkey hunters or pheasant hunters or duck hunters or elk hunters, and anywhere between, you know, 8 and 40% of them belong to an organization. But less than 1% of deer hunters do. Well, the NDA is going to change that. You know, it's where you can put 8, 9, 10% or more of deer hunters together. If we do that, that would be well over a million deer hunters. So where I have an opportunity to get quick information to folks on advocacy issues like, hey, we're trying to, you know, lose Sunday hunting in your state. Or they're trying to remove this opportunity for hunters. Or hunters, you know, rights are being infringed upon here. You know, think about how big of an impact we could have if we could get information in these hunters' hands very quickly such that they could let their state agencies or legislators know, hey, I disagree with this, or conversely, hey, I support this. So there has never been a movement for deer hunters like this in the past, so this is a very, very positive thing. The fact that it's free to deer hunters, you know, it doesn't cost you anything to sign up, it's just a bonus, it makes it that much easier. So uh, a lot of these issues that we talked about where agencies aren't listening to hunters or agencies are having to fight with politicians for bad wildlife laws they're trying to put in place. You know, as hunters, we can solve almost all of this. And I think the NDA is the perfect vehicle to make that happen. Yeah, I uh, I would second everything you said there, and, I, and I'm really excited about what's happening there. And, and like you said, there's there's a lot of opportunity to, to service a need that's really out there, especially given these things that are affecting deer and deer hunters across the country today. Um, so, it, you know, it's one of those things that you know, the National Deer Alliance is, is getting its feet underneath it, but I think there's some really exciting things to come in the future, and I'm excited to personally to be involved in that, and I'm glad that people like you are helping out too, Kip. Um, and speaking of exciting things to come, the North American Deer Summit is coming this spring, and that's something we haven't talked about here yet on the podcast, but I know some details are starting to emerge about that, and you've been involved. Kip, can you tell us a little bit about what the North American Deer Summit is and why people might want to you know get involved with that? Sure. Uh, this past year, 2014, was the inaugural uh, Deer Summit, 
and it's the first time that the deer stakeholders from a whole bunch of different groups sat down together. There was lots of times where state agencies meet or hunters meet or trade shows meet, but there had never been a meeting where folks from all of these had sat down to really address these issues of deer hunting. So that was a very successful meeting, and what came out of that was the need to create an umbrella organization that could speak on behalf of all deer hunters, hence the National Deer Alliance. That's where that came from. So uh, then they said, okay, this is great. And they said, all right, now one of the things we did at that meeting was deterred, identified the top ten issues impacting deer hunting and management. So we have those. But when we got down to attendees, said, hey, we need another summit next year, which is the one that's this year in 2015, you know, to address these issues and say, okay, let's get some specific action items. So that's really what this year's summit is about. So May uh, 6th to the 8th uh, in Louisville, Kentucky, we were going to be sitting down again with people from all these different stakeholder groups. And the cool thing about this year, Mark, is that it's open to the public. Last year it was a very restricted uh, attendee list because of the size of the facility we were at. We don't have those confinements this year. So anybody can come. They still will be divided into one of six or seven different stakeholder groups. And it's very interactive. They get to vote on what's happening. And what we're going to do is we're going to give them, hey, here are the ten issues from last year that we identified as the biggest ones. Pick four of these that you want the NDA to specifically address first and move forward with coming up with specific action items that they can do to address them and to help solve them. So uh, there's going to be some prepared talks on some of the big issues that are going on. But a lot of the summit is interactive where you're not just going to go and sit and kind of listen. You will be involved in the future of deer hunting and management. You know, there's never been an opportunity for hunters to be more empowered on what's going to happen in the summer or the spring. So uh, it's a great opportunity for folks to go, have their say, and, uh, you know, have a big impact on what they get to hunt during the rest of their life uh, as well as what the kids get to hunt. So it's pretty exciting. Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm very excited about that too. And, you know, I think to your point earlier about, you know, the fact that we need to be taking advantage of these opportunities to engage when, you know, the agency or the whatever it might be is asking for feedback from hunters. Well, here is an amazing opportunity for hunters to get involved, to have their voices heard, to, to interact with people, like you said, from all these different stakeholders. I mean, how often does, you know, how often would I get the chance that an average deer hunter sit down and talk to a biologist or someone in the industry or a media representative or, you know, someone from an advocacy or conservation group and hear all the different perspectives on, you know, what's what are the solutions for some of these issues or what are the problems or what are the things we need to be moving forward on? I think it's going to be really interesting to hear all these different things, to interact with all these different people. And like you said, to have a real, um, you know, real stake in what happens moving forward. So I will be sure to get, um, you know, information in the show notes for anyone listening. If you want more information about the North American deer summit, go to wired slash episode 41. And you'll, they'll have a link there that can drive you to a website with all the details about the summer, how to register, um, what else to look forward to. Um, I think there's some really neat things that are, that are going to be going on there that are directly relevant to the conversation we've been having here today. So that said, Kip, we are, we are coming up on time and we've taken a lot of time out of your day. So I want to, to thank you for spending uh, this last hour with us discussing whitetails. Oh, absolutely. It was, it was good talking with you. And, uh, and I'll, I can tell you, listeners, too, if any of them are interested in the, the Whitetail Report that we discussed throughout this time, uh, it's going to be available on our website uh, next week. So uh, that, uh, it'll be there. It's free to take. Anybody can go and grab it and uh, take a look at how their state compares to others and uh, see what these big issues are and, and what folks are doing to address them. 
Absolutely. I think it's it's a really tremendous resource you guys have been putting out there. And like you mentioned, it's a free uh, download. You can download a PDF right, right, right now really easily. And I will make sure to include that link as well in the show notes. And just so everyone knows, the past Whitetail reports are available to download too. And so like you mentioned, Kip, I think there's been five or five of them maybe now. Well, we started um, in 2009, so uh, we got, uh, yeah, it, uh, it doesn't seem like the, it's gone that quickly. But, yeah, we got quite a few of them there now. And, and each year, you know, it's different issues that are leading, uh, leading the charge. So uh, you know, folks can take a look at what was the biggest thing in 2009 and then 10 and, and each year. So uh, if you're a deer nut, you're going to like those reports. I promise you. Yeah, yeah, I can concur. I've based on my own experience digging into those. There's it's just it's a tremendous resource. Tons of information, tons of, you know, not just trends and data, but then, you know, you guys provide some really great resources and um stories and articles related to different research or different studies and even hunting advice and a whole bunch of different things. I've really enjoyed them. So, I definitely recommend everyone listening to check out the past issues and then definitely next week when the 2015 report comes out, check that out for sure. So I think that's going to be it for us, Kip. Thank you so much. All right. Great talking to you guys. Uh, Have a good day. You too, Kip. All right. Well, there you have it. Things are definitely getting interesting these days in the whitetail world. But remember, you can get involved and help promote positive change. And I'd encourage you to get involved with organizations like the National Deer Alliance, the QDMA, or Whitetails Unlimited, and find ways that you can help the cause. And as we discussed, definitely look into the North American Deer Summit too. Now for show notes and links to all the different resources and organizations we've discussed, visit wiredtohunt.com slash episode 41. And if you haven't done so already, make sure you subscribe to the Wired to Hunt podcast on iTunes, the Apple Podcast app, or the Stitcher app if you use Android, so you'll get all the future episodes downloaded right to your phone or tablet. Also, if you've enjoyed this show, I'd encourage you to leave a rating or review on iTunes. It's a huge help, so thank you for doing that. And speaking of thank yous, we'd also like to thank our partners who help make this show possible. Big thanks to Sitka Gear, Trophy Ridge, Bear Archery, Redneck Blinds, Carbon Express Arrows, Huntsoft, Lacrosse Boots, Big and J Long Range Attractants, and the Whitetail Institute of North America. And finally, thanks to you for joining us today. With all of us hunters working together to protect and promote deer and deer hunting, I'm excited to see the great things we can accomplish in 2015. So get involved, let your voice be heard, and stay wired to hunt. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more.